has its own futures index and a few more. So if you're at all curious or interested, and you should be as we head forward in this year, join us in our members only week. And as a member, you get access to all the recordings of our previous fall boot camps and some of our other sessions that we've had during the year, as well as all of our coursework and our illustrious community on Discord. Please don't miss out on this spectacular skill building event and also a chance to become a member of Black's Academy. Now that that's out of the way, let's get into this monthly market mix. For November, it seems like we were just here, and that's true because the October monthly market mix was a little bit late. Therefore, I'm going to be brief with our market review. We're just going to touch base on the indices and see where we were, but I really want to take a different approach than I normally would with the rest of the material. First, we're going to talk about the Fed again, but we're also going to talk about the jobs report that dropped last week and also the odds of extending Fed hikes. And if you've looked at anything in the financial world in the last few months, anytime this year, really, you'll know that interest rate hikes have been right at the top of everybody's list along with inflation. They go hand in hand. Next on the list and a little late salute to the Halloween season, I'm going to bring up Fang Bangers. And that is my tongue and tongue and cheek play on the Fang Index, which measures some of the high-flying tech stocks of the last decade or more. We'll talk a little bit about how that plays into the Fed rates. Uh, I'm sure some of your portfolios contain some Fang stocks, so I'm sure you'll have some something to say about that. And we'll also talk about the future of that industry and that sector. After that, we're going to get into Dalio's changing world order. Ray Dalio is one of my first personal favorites in the financial world as a hedge fund manager and now also as an author and teacher of sorts. And I want to talk a little bit about the midterm elections, which come up this week. And lastly, how much does the dollar cost? In fact, I'd be really impressed for any of you listeners if you actually know where that reference comes from. But what we're going to be talking about is the rise of FX hedge funds. That is, Forex hedge funds are back on the rise, and there's a really, really easy reason as to why that is. That being said, we're going to pause right now and head right to the indices. I promise this will be quick. So first up, we have, of course, the S&P 500 index. And not much has changed since the last time we talked, except for the fact that we have touched the lows of the year, which coincide conveniently for us at this 50% retracement level. And this is 50% of the distance from the lows of the coronavirus pandemic up to the highs of December of 2021. The S&P 500 has bounced higher since then, but by my estimation, the move from these lows right around the middle of October won't probably be sustained. We'll probably make another crack at the lows or at least maybe come down a little bit lower in the next few weeks. So again, there's not much doing. There hasn't been a lot of time since we last talked about this, but from my perspective, I like how these, uh, how this has played out. I like how this looks. And to be honest, I think you should too. Explaining a little bit more about why I think 
the S&P is going to go a little bit lower, we have to go and look at the NASDAQ uh, QQQ here. You can see that QQQ touched in the same manner. Instead of touching 50%, it touched 61.8 and pushed up as well. But given tech's sensitivities to the economic news from last week, which is rate hikes and also the labor report, which we'll touch on a little bit later, you can see that it had a less sustained move higher popped up and then it's come back down to this range. But once again, I think if we stay within this range to the top side, maybe 258, 260, and maybe 245 on the downside, everything still looks well. This still seems to me like the market is trying to find some type of support in the near term. And seasonally speaking, we tend to have what's called the Santa Claus rally that happens at the end of the year. It's not a guarantee, but it's something that we can expect. Moving on, my favorite chart of the year, we see upticks in crude futures. Just like the equity indices, crude hit sort of a support zone that we've been looking at. Uh, comes almost, really it does come down to the July 21st high, which this is now resistance turned support and we've moved off of it. Uh, we've kind of come up in another corrective manner. So I think that the upside to crude may be limited. It just really depends on how the rest of the risk markets behave and some other factors. But I think we're kind of capped for right now. Um, I would expect there to be some sort of resistance around $94 a barrel, but pay attention to it creeping back up to 100. That's the psychologically significant number around numbers like 100, 200, 150 tend to attract the price on a technical basis. Don't really have to get into the fundamentals of it, but as you know, if crude oil prices do tend to tick up, you're going to start to see it come into the pumps at the gas stations at some point in the near future. So nothing to really worry about here. I think topside resistance is right here at about 50%, maybe a little bit less, but as the Fed keeps putting pressure on the dollar to go higher via rates, that may actually curtail some of this as well as in addition to some of the economic production that we're seeing. Now, moving on, last chart, just to bring it up, the US dollar has had a phenomenal year. If we take it back to the lows of last summer, May, June of 2021, the US dollar, which is an asset that, that does not typically appreciate very much is up 28%. And this is almost up as much, actually is up more than the uh, stock market is down right now. But you can attribute this to a rise in tensions around the world as the US dollar is a reserve currency, but also more importantly, the Fed raising rates. Anytime you have a rate hike, the currency itself, the local currency here is the dollar, is becomes more valuable. More investors want to have it because it actually has higher yields, and this is reflected in the price chart. At this yellow arrow, I thought we might have turned, but the Fed had no intent on curtailing interest rates like I thought. So even though it paused at this 61.8% level, which is at 108, almost 108.60 on the U.S. dollar index, there was a brief pause in the retracement in the movement, and it's gone much higher. We're now... I have been above 113 and can continue to go higher. Maybe the next target is around 116, 117 in the U.S. dollar index. 
One of the things to look out for, of course, is the Fed rate decisions. The next one's going to be in December. And then after that, we'll look for one in February. But that's the round out of the markets. Not a lot has changed, but I want to give that as context before we get into the next part, which talks about the Federal Reserve and what happened last week. Last Wednesday, the Federal Reserve in its Federal Open Market Committee meeting raised interest rates by another 75 basis points to bring the lower end of the interest rate to 3.75%. To put this in perspective, in early 2021, interest rates were at one quarter of a percent. We're 15 times higher than that. But with inflation running at a 40-year high and sticking there, the Fed chairman, when asked about what he thought rates would be in the future, he said he was premature to start thinking about pausing rates, even though you've had investment fund managers, politicians, everybody seems to say that the Fed needs to stop raising rates, but Powell and the Fed governor seem to differ. The data that they're looking at suggests that inflation is going to stay high and remain elevated for an extended period, and they want to keep their foot on the gas when it comes to interest rates. Maybe compounding this, on Friday, we had our jobs report. So the Bureau of Labor Statistics announced October's job report, adding 261,000 new jobs in October. Curiously enough, and this happens sometimes, unemployment actually went up during that same period, went up 0.2% from 3.5%, which is near what's considered to be pretty saturated, to 3.7%. But again, given the fact that inflation remains high, part of the Fed's mission is to modulate the growth of the economy, which is a little weird when you consider they want to somehow curtail some of the job growth that we've been seeing, but they want job market stability, which is really ironic. But at the same time, they've committed to fighting inflation because having both of these things growing at the same time can really destabilize the economy, which is not what they want to do. One of the interesting things that I looked at in the components, and the jobs report has unemployment, it has a number of jobs created or lost during the same during this monthly period, but they also look at hourly earnings. How much does hourly earnings change on a month-to-month -month basis, on a yearly basis? And that tells you a lot about the labor markets as well. And one curious thing that you'll find here is that inflation rose sharply. We've been talking about that, but since the pandemic of 2020, we had a sharp uptick in hourly earnings. Part of that was because, because of demand for jobs, because of the ones that were lost and then the sweeping motions by the Fed and the government to bring jobs back, you had higher wages. You had, it became an employee's market, whereas companies are still saying that they're looking for workers and we still haven't hit the labor rates and participation rates that we had prior to 2020. So what we have now is a situation where we have wage growth. And this, strangely, in this scenario, this curious scenario that we have, wage growth is a concern because, in a sense, you would think that the Fed would want 
Anybody would want wages to keep up with the prices of goods. But the problem here is simple. If you want inflation to come down or at least subside, you have to have some sort of separation between earnings, how much people can earn, because that translates into how much they can spend, versus the actual costs of those goods. If they can keep paying for the cost, they're generally going to keep shelling it out. Remember, we have a $23 trillion economy, and 70% of that is basically services and consumption, basically consumerism. So part of the Fed's job here is a delicate balance of raising rates to keep things tight, but also not doing it overextended and letting us fall into a recession or worse. But again, we've talked about that in prior monthly market mixes. That is an unenviable position. And a lot of people, and even I have my doubts, are unsure if the Fed has the tools or the resolve to actually get this done. At any case, I think it's going to take a good bit of luck either way. Now, thinking about the Fed, thinking about, you know, are rates going to go higher? We have to look at something that I think you should know about. And if you didn't already know about it, here's a good time to learn. The Chicago Mercantile Exchange, the CME, has what they call FedWatch. It's a tool, an online tool that you can look at on their website that calculates the odds for a Fed rate hike or whether they're going to stay or even cut rates according to the probabilities in the data that they pick up. The odds of a 50 point or 50 bips rate hike in December are about the same, just slightly a little bit better, 52% versus another 75 basis point rate hike in the next December meeting. Both of these will push rates up even higher. And because Chairman Powell says that the Fed is going to be aggressive, it sort of makes sense. It was odd to me that the market reacted so negatively on last Wednesday when the Fed decided to hike the full 75 basis points. You can listen to a lot of the talking heads on TV, CNBC, Bloomberg, and they sort of were looking for a happier stance, which would have been the Fed leaving rates where they were. But again, if the Fed is data focused, I think if you're looking to anticipate or use this data on your own, you also have to be data focused as well. And if you look at PPI, CPI, and PCE, which is a trio that the Fed really checks off on to make sure that they're on the right chart, right path, you can see that inflation is still pretty locked in. That being said, the FedWatch tool calculates these as well and calculates based on how some of the futures and derivatives markets work. They can kind of factor in and see what are the odds. They're not perfect. No odd machine ever is, and nor should you expect it to be. But it gives you a good idea that in general sense, we should expect that the next one to two Fed meetings, unless something changes, should have rate hikes. And so like we've talked about for the last few monthly market mixes, this means that money gets more expensive. Now, if you use the rest of the Fed tool, you can find some other interesting things. You can find some other curves and graphs. And one of them is the implied interest rate curve. And it shows it for a much longer period of time. If you're looking at the chart here, we're expecting, based on the derivatives and all the other calculations that use in this tool, 
for rates to peak somewhere in the middle of 2023. And that peak may be up as much as five and a quarter percent. Five and a quarter percent, the last time I saw that rate was maybe around 2006, 2007. So we still have a ways to go if we're at about 4% now, which means that as we add more percentages, the costs have to carry over into other aspects of our life. Now, granted, I'd like you to play around with the FedWatch tool, check out the website, because one thing you'll learn is that the implied rates are dynamic, which means that as they get more inputs and the inputs are not static, they change over time, you'll see that this curve will bend and change as well. And so the outlook that you see today may not be the one that you see next week or a month later. So it's good to kind of get a general feel, but remember, this is not some type of prognostication that has some certain guarantee. None of this stuff is. It's just to give you a good idea. So as you're planning out your life, as you're planning out your finances, maybe you're talking to your financial advisor, keep in mind that money is expected to get more expensive at least through 2023 and maybe well into 2024. For some people, they may say, well, I hear what you're saying, but what does that really mean for me? A lot of people want to know specifically, what does that mean for me in buying a car or a house? Well, here's one thing that you know. Borrowing costs are tied directly to the Fed's benchmark interest rate. So if it goes up, these borrowing costs are going to go down. If it goes down or stays stable, so are your borrowing costs for mortgage rates or car loans or whatever purchases you're looking to finance using some type of credit. And again, these rates are to remain elevated at least into 2023. They may come out and normalize by into 2024, maybe 2025. That has implications also for the stock market, which we'll talk about a little, but it's just to give you an idea that for the next year, maybe two, expect higher rates. If you get anything under it, take it as gratis. It goes without saying that across the financial markets, investors have been suffering in 2022 because stocks have taken it on the nose, this environment in which inflation is running out of control and the Fed is doing everything that they can to keep inflation at bay, mostly being raising rates. Well, what has that done to stocks? You know the answer. But a particular subset of stocks that has been high flying is what will be referred to as FANG. FANG is an acronym for Facebook, before it was Meta, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. The reason is these were the most successful companies, at least over the last decade, they really stretched out longer than that, maybe last 15 years. Moreover, as we saw this giant historic asset appreciation from the 2009 lows into the highs of 2021, the FANG stocks in particular were considered to be invincible. In fact, most of them could have been counted on to produce double-digit annualized returns over the decade. It wasn't enough that the S&P 500 was doing double digits, but these stocks were doing well above that and then some. The problem is what goes up in large amounts will come down much faster. And we saw this this year. There was a huge deleveraging uh, investors of all sorts 
falling out of love after being enamored with these stocks for over a decade. And we can see that if you were in the FANG stocks since the end of the, movie, of the TV series True Blood, you're, which is, again, September of 2014, you're still up about 10%. But if you're new, like if you invested in some of this, this FANG motif last year, you've lost at least half the value, about 49% of your investment. So this kind of tells you that long-term investing is key. You're still typically going to get your objectives if you keep them long-term and can be patient no matter what. But in the short term, no matter what it looks like, no matter how wonderful the company is, there's always a lot of risk and risk isn't the same to everybody. So make sure that you only risk what you can afford to be without or to lose. In particular, a rapid change in interest rates tends to be problematic for tech companies for a lot of reasons. And we've talked about this before in the October mix. We talked about this extensively. But as you go forward, understanding that tech stocks are particularly susceptible to rate hikes. If you're seeing red across your portfolio, that means something. But for those of you not in the markets, if you look at the market cycles, which we will talk some about, you can see this particularly as an opportunity. Now, I'm never going to be one person to recommend that you go out and get any particular security, especially not without doing your homework. But one thing I will say is that if you are intent on buying markets at discounts, make sure that instead of buying entire narratives, make sure that you're looking for quality, make sure you're looking for the companies that have the products and the services and they're aligned with the future such that when the markets do normalize, and generally speaking, they will, they have over time, it just may take a really long period of time, which we are uncertain of, you're buying quality over quantity and not just buying every dip that you see in the market. Otherwise, you may find out that your capital will disappear much faster than you have resolved to fill it. But as usual, if we actually look at the FANG stocks, and they actually have another acronym now too, because you can add Microsoft into this mix. But if you look at the FANG stocks, again, what you see is shorter term pain because tech stocks are more volatile than the market itself, as evidenced by, if you look at the difference between the benchmark, which is S&P 500 versus, you know, any individual component like Google or Apple or Amazon or Netflix or Facebook slash Meta, any one of those is down far more than a portfolio that's including all of them. This is a nod to diversification, but because all the stocks that you are quote unquote diversifying by are all in tech or at least adjacent to tech, they still are going to be down more than the market. Now, what's the bright side of this? Again, over the long term, if you look at the annualized returns of the FANG stocks over the last decade, you're talking about 19.6%. That's more than double what the market generally gives you. And the risk, of course, is going to be a little bit higher. But even if you adjust for risk, the 
looking at Sharp and Sortino ratios, all these quantitative looks, the fangs gave you a pretty good bang for your buck. As a general idea, they still may be a good place to put money in the future. That's why we go over the more important levels that you can look at at the market. You can also say, well, if the S&P is supposed to go at this level, maybe Google or Apple or Amazon or any of these may be at a corresponding level because they correlate. Using this information that you put out, that we put out in the monthly market mix can help you find perhaps some good ideas. But again, we can't recommend any particular security whatsoever. This is just to give you some ideas of what to do in education of sorts. But long-term investing still wins out, even if the short term is as bloody and ugly as it has been in 2022. Now, if you follow our monthly market mixes for a while, you'll know that our emphasis is to give Blacks Academy students a broader perspective. And I don't think there's much broader perspective than bringing Ray Dalio and his ideas on what he calls the new changing world order into play. If you don't know much about Ray Dalio, he's the co-founder and former chief investment officer of one of the largest and most successful hedge funds the world has ever seen called Bridgewater Associates. At their height, they managed over 200 billion, with a B, assets under management across a number of markets, not just stocks and bonds, but commodities and derivatives and currencies and you name it. And Dalio was also the author of a principles book and also this book on big debt crises and the changing world order. I'm a big fan of Dalio because of his systematic look at how the economy works. There's a couple of free videos on how the economy works that I think if you haven't seen them, you owe it to yourself as a student of the market to watch. But also this systematic thinking is what brought about his all weather funds that brought him to prosperity and notoriety as a hedge fund manager, but also his thought patterns behind that made him sort of a thought leader in the world. And what brings this up to me is he's now saying, and don't take this as a gloom and doom, that we're approaching what seems to be a final stage, this stage six of his changing world order. And let me explain a little bit more. Dalio, like a lot of market practitioners, sees all of the culmination of human activity, at least that which can be measured by the financial markets, as being cyclical. There's some type of cycle. Something happens and it evolves and then it gets to a climax point and then it kind of reverts back to where it began. In simplest terms, he has what he considers to be an internal cycle, which you're looking at an economy or a business, you can look at a number of entities and this, you would see the same thing. And what he's seeing is that there's six stages to this cycle, which you go from benign, no conflict, no drama up until where you have as bad as wars and even civil revolutions and certain things. And it reverts back. You could look at where we are now based on what he has here. And I'm not going to go through all of it, but I encourage you all to look here. He thinks that as a result of what he's seeing, when you're measuring education levels, 
looking at civility among different societies around the world, rule following, corruption, the investment in infrastructure, productivity of the economies, capital allocation, which is investment, the, the efficiency thereof, and indebtedness. He thinks we're shifting away from the middle section of prosperity and growth to later, later sections, namely stage six, which is the stage where you have upheavals, that sort of thing. I bring this to your attention, again, not to gloom and doom and definitely not for profiteering, but to, again, coincide with the mindset of saying, well, if I want to know what's ahead for myself, my family, my portfolio, these are the things that some of the best in the business look at, and this is how they look at it. This very systematic way may be off-putting for some people, but what I've found is that this is a very objective way of looking at the inputs and being able to measure outputs based on those and kind of get a general idea of what the investment landscape looks like. Should I be worried? Should I be more aggressive? Or should I be more defensive? or neutral about it at all. So Dalio sees stage six, but in the same sense, he also sees that this stage could also be avoidable. Right now, what we're seeing on the world stage is allies, those who have some type of geopolitical interests that align with each other are starting to have tensions where they didn't have them, or maybe they've only had them in historic terms. Right now, you know, as of 2022, we have an ongoing conflict between Russia and Ukraine, who also have a long cultural history, and they have a history of conflict that has ignited this year, has caused a lot of problems around the world, much less the tensions there locally. Even China and Taiwan, in the headlines and the news, you can see that China has been actually aggressive in their language about their thoughts on Taiwan. And to the, to the point that the United States has also introduced some legislation that is taking some of the semiconductor world away from the focus there. In fact, the Semiconductor Act bill that we just passed is looking to bring billions in infrastructure support to make semiconductors here in the United States going forward. What this does, even though politically this means something in the United States, it creates more tensions between the US and China, which are two of the world's largest trading partners. Even though culturally, geopolitically, they do not see eye to eye, both of these countries have tremendous influence on the world militarily, politically, and also economically. But here we also see Greece and Turkey have renewed some of their disagreements as late. And this I bring to your attention only because of Dalio's changing world order sort of gives a structure to these happenings. And we can kind of keep these as data points. They don't mean that there's anything happening in finality. It has to happen. There's, again, no guarantees, but it gives you an idea of what to expect. Now, taking our politics back local, and local being the United States, this week we have our midterm elections. And the midterm elections are, of course, 
the ones that are halfway through the four-year presidential term, and they're on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November, and that's the 8th. Depending on your political slant, you may read a lot into the outcomes of the midterm elections as to have not only effects on the socioeconomics of the United States as a whole, as most politicals do, but also to have impacts on the markets themselves. And there are events that are politically driven, as we've seen very recently over the last political terms, that the markets do respond to politics, but not every event is treated the same way by the financial markets. And part of our job at Blacks Academy is to educate our students and our listeners on what's important versus what we think is important, because often they're not the same things. If we go back to 1962, we can see that in the years heading into, or the year 12-month period heading into the midterm elections, typically the market underperforms its historical average. On average, the annual return for the S&P is about 0.3% versus the historical average of 8.1%. Now, after the midterm elections are done, the market averages 16%, which is noticeably higher than the historical average. But you can look through this data and, and fumble through it, do whatever you like to it. But I'll summarize here. Regardless of whether you're red or blue or whether you think that one party holds some key to the economy or the other one is destined to doom it, the data shows that the outcomes of the midterm elections in particular has no noticeable impact on the overall stock market's performance. So in a sense, even though you may have and you should have your own political issues to attend to and go exercise your right to vote in doing so, don't worry about your portfolio. The midterms won't do much for you. Now, as a final topic, I'd like to bring something that, once again, is near and dear to my heart back to center stage, not just as a bragging right, but as another data point to show you where you may need to be interested as you're looking through where to invest, where not to invest, and where the markets are going. Currency hedge funds are posting the best years that they have in a very long time. If you know what a hedge fund is, it is a financial firm, firm or fund that is designed to do some creative finance in the hopes of creating value for their investors through trading, arbitrage, a lot of different tools and specialities in any type of market weather. And you invest, you can invest in currencies or options, or you can have multiple strategies at the same time, invest in stocks, invest in bonds, whatever. Hedge funds are a very ambiguous body, but in particular, you can section them off based on what markets they trade. If you take us all the way back to the 2009 lows of the market, Forex volatility in the currency exchange markets has been historically low between about 2013 and 2019. I know because I traded in these markets in grueling like a lot of these hedge funds that are now posting gains. A lot of currency funds closed down because when it comes to hedge funds, 
hedge funds are designed for the most part to thrive in periods of uncertainty. It's their job. It's their job to hedge portfolios, at least in theory, against uncertain market situations. Well, the rise in the equity markets and the corroboration of the central banks in their quantitative easing and financial tools between 2009 all the way to 2021 made the Forex markets pretty calm. All the central banks typically were going towards zero or near zero interest rates, which made a lot of the currencies not have much difference between them. One of the things that drives currency trading is interest rate differentials. The differential between one benchmark interest rate, like here in the United States, versus somewhere else like China, Japan, the European Union, et cetera, et cetera. Well, due to there being large scale and wholesale changes in monetary policy across the world to address issues like inflation, uh, deinflation in some places, market crashes, you're starting to see that volatility pick up and as you should expect, currency hedge funds have responded to the call, at least the ones that survived. The reason I bring this up to you as investors and thinkers and students of the market is that everybody may be interested and eager to invest in areas that they already know, like we just talked about the FANG stocks and tech, and we've talked about other areas that along futuristic scales may seem like good investments. If you look at the world in terms of currency exchange and trade and interest rates, there may be opportunities here in emerging markets, frontier markets, developed markets, where there's differences in which there were not those just a year ago. And as we've talked about with the Fed and their interest rate policy, they may be very different from that of the European Union or the Swiss National Bank or the Bank of Japan. These are areas where you can focus find opportunities that you might not have thought about. And the idea of hedge funds, no matter what they're in, tells you that there's money to be made and hopefully in the future that is still the opportunities are there. You just have to be able to systematically like Dalio, piece together the picture and figure out what's the best probabilities. Because again, there are no guarantees. So those are our topics. We kind of cut through everything else. We still have rising global tensions and interest rates on the rise across the world. Slowing gro global growth is a theme, but there are pockets of opportunities there. Europe still has an energy problem, which we'll discuss more as we get closer to the winter uh, season in the next monthly market mix. And we've already discussed the U.S. labor market and wages and how that kind of conflicts with the Fed's ultimate plan. Be that as it may, this is the end of the November monthly market mix. I hope you learned something. And we also hope that you join us at Blacks Academy, where we always hope that you know enough to move forward. Thank you.